Our scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 5. So first of all, we'll read uh, verses 7 to 13. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. This is the word of the Lord.
when we find out that Jane is going to be uh, reading, we try to get her the longest passages we can possibly get her. <laughs> so thank you, Jane. David Pelzer has written many books, self-help books, books about his own life autobiographically. But his most famous book, and the book that brought him to recognition, is a book that's entitled A Child Called It. And in it, David relates the story of his life and growing up with a very abusive mother. He tells the story of how his mom singled him out and chose to bring all sorts of wrath and disdain on him. It started when he was very young and she just began to call him the boy as opposed to his proper name that had been given him, David. Now she wouldn't do that while others were around and she cared for him as a good mother when others were present, but when they were by themselves, she would beat him and torture him. As he continued to grow up in that and recognizing that his other brothers didn't receive that same sort of thing, and his other brothers began to recognize that they were not receiving that from their mother, they began to refer to him as the boy. But in fifth grade, she changed, and she decided that he was no longer a person. And it was the first time that she referred to him as it. David's identity and who he was was wrapped up in the circumstances and the tragedy that he was living in. To the point that at that place, he recognized that he was worthless. He began to believe that he was not human anymore, that he was the it that his mom, in fact, had created. The stories that you heard in the passage of Scripture really go to a place of identity for us. Jesus, when he encounters the man who has demon possession and is going crazy in the graveyard, says to those demons, what's your name? Who are you? And it's a question that he asked really to everybody that's in this passage that we looked at in Mark chapter 5. They each are identified by either their circumstance or by their rank or by their illness. There's something about them that we know who they are based on that thing. And in our own lives, oftentimes, we step into a place of identity based on either things that have happened to us or things that we want to become or things that are told to us of who we are. And we lose ourselves and who we are in God. But we see in this passage God breaking in. But as I continued to study this and look at it and, and allow, hopefully, God to bring His words to you and to my own heart today, another question kept coming into my mind. Not what is your name, but the question is, why don't you do that anymore? You see, what we have happening here is God coming in in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of the God being ushered in, and Jesus releasing a man who has been in bondage with demon possession free. 
We see a woman who for 12 years has had an issue that she's gone to doctors and spent millions of dollars, right? I mean, might as well have been, to have no healing take place. And we have a little girl who dies. Yet God brings healing and completeness in all three of those situations. And so perhaps the question that we might have that comes to our mind is, I don't care what my name is, why don't you do that anymore? I pray for healing, and I don't see it. I ask God to heal, and it doesn't happen. I have loved ones that have died. I have my own ailments that haven't taken place. And they still just torture me. Where's that miraculous healing at anymore? And it got me to thinking about this passage in Colossians 1 starting in verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You see, Jesus, as He walked on the earth, was God incarnate. He was the all-powerful Creator, Ruler, God who was in this world, presently in the flesh. And so while He experienced all things human, He also possessed in Himself all things divine. So all that creative power, all that healing power was there. It's interesting that in the story of the woman who has the the blood disease that has uh, really tortured her for 12 years, that it's not Jesus touching her that transforms her, but it's her reaching out and grabbing the cloak. And he says, he felt the power go out of him. And so in some sense, as if, it's as if the, the amazing universe that God has created has been smashed down as Jesus incarnate is present. And it has become the thinnest of all thinnest membranes. And that because God is present in the world, in the person of Jesus Christ, is that His power cannot be contained. And so there's moments and places where it just shoots out of Him. It can't be helped. This is God Almighty, the creator and ruler of the universe in human form coming into his creation. And so it's as if the magnificence of who he is has been pushed to the thinnest of membranes. And so the supernatural is present in the natural. And it explodes. She just touched it. So maybe that's why we see these miracles. Now, we also know that the miracles are there to point to God, to let us know that Jesus, in fact, is God and that he is the Messiah, the promised one. But but maybe it's also because God was present and he couldn't help himself. Like the power was so immense and mighty that it just flowed out of him. And so maybe that's why now, at this moment, Because He is not here earthly, but here in His Spirit among His gathered people. 
that we don't see those sort of miraculous type healings happen anymore. And that's not always comforting to us. And it's sad consolation sometimes when we see those who we long to be made whole, not be made whole in this present realm. But I didn't want to go on talking about our identity and what our name is without really addressing the fact that when we come to passages where healing takes place, that our hearts can be broken in a place of that. That we can sit back and go, Father, how awesome it would have been for you to have healed or how awesome it would be for you to take care of this now in this realm. But our hope is that we know that all things will be made new as they always were when Christ returns. And that we will step into wholeness like we've never stepped before. And that there will be those present in wholeness who are not whole here anymore. So before we go on, let me pray. Father, bring comfort to our hearts in this place where we are hurting because we have those that we love or even ourselves who are broken down. Who we just want healing. We just want completeness. It's a desire that you've put into us, Father. And and we read stories like this and, and we think, why not now? Father, we believe that you've not stopped doing that, that you can definitely do that. You are God Almighty. You can do whatever you want. But we know that there was something special when you were present in flesh and that the universe was was a thin place and compacted down and, and your mighty holiness, your righteousness, your creatorness, your wholeness was present. Kicking up sand. And so give us comfort and let us comfort one another. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So Jesus asked, what's your name? Who are you? And we recognize that in this place there are three or four people that really need to answer that question. One is the the demon-possessed man and the demon that's within him. Now, his identity had been completely taken over. It it was possession. He did not have himself any longer. He was no longer who God created him to be. And so he needed to be released from that. And then we had the woman who, who needed to identify as something else. Her identity had been one of an outcast. Her identity had been one who could not be present with other people. And then we had Jairus, Jairus who, who was this uh, leader in the temple, right? Imagine that, a leader in the temple. The, the temple, the, the men in, who had been deciding that they needed to kill Jesus earlier, he's one of them. And he thinks, I don't care because my daughter's sick. And then we have his little daughter who's on the deathbed and eventually dies. But is that really who they are? Is that their identity? And I would say no. No, it's not. You see, their circumstances actually don't define who they are. They might inform who they become, but they don't define who they are. 
What defines who they are is who Jesus calls them out to be. So for the man who is demon-possessed, when he is released, he becomes one who wants to follow Jesus. He is a man of freedom. And he decides, I want to go with you. But Jesus says, no, you can't. I need you to go back in to your people and let them know what's happened. The woman who has been hurting and suffering for 12 years, she has been an outcast, one who has been set aside. And he says, no, you're my daughter when he heals her. And you are one of faith. That's who you really are. And Jairus, who is this man who is high and lifted up and an officer in the temple, he's like, no, (laughs) you are a man in need. See, as one who's in the temple, he's highly regarded and seems to appear that he doesn't need anything else. But he says to him, that's not who you are. Who you really are is one who is in need. And to his daughter, he says, no, you're not one who's dead. (laughs) You're one who's alive. So I want you to know this. Jesus has a name for you as well. And it's all those things. It's that you are one who is in need. I am one who is in need. But I'm also one who has freedom. And I'm also one who is a child. And I'm also one who is alive. But what does it look like for us to step into that identity? What does that mean? Well, the first thing that it means is that we have to have courage to actually want to step into that identity. We see that most clearly in the woman because of the courage that it takes her to move out of isolation, to move away from her circumstances, to move away from the things that have caused her to be put outside of her community for 12 years and to go push through the throngs of people. Do you realize that every time she touched somebody there, had she not been healed, that when they recognized her and saw that they had touched her, they then became unclean, so they would have to go off as well. There's courage in allowing ourselves to be transformed by Jesus. It is so much easier for us to rest in who we think we are as opposed to believing in faith who God has us to be. It's so much easier for us because it's here and it's around us and it's people telling us to accept how people identify us but not believe how God identifies us. And so the first thing that we need to recognize when we move into our identity with Christ is that it's going to take courage because it changes who we are. And that means those people around us who have identified us as those who are outcasts, the the woman I cannot touch, now have to accept her back into their home. She is healed completely. She can see her family again. She can go and prepare a meal for them. How difficult that must be for them how difficult it must have been for her to know now I step into real life again, into community again. So the first thing that we know is it takes courage. The second thing that we recognize is that it takes faith. All three of them end up having faith. There's an important thing that takes place, though, for us in this passage. In Mark, when the demons see Jesus, they cry out, to him. 
And they say to him, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? To move to our identity takes faith. It doesn't take knowledge. The demons had knowledge. They knew exactly who Jesus was. They could pass any ordination exam. They could get through seminary in a blink of an eye. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They had knowledge. Knowledge does not get you to the place of your new identity. As a matter of fact, knowledge most often puffs you up in the identity that you've created for yourself. But faith, faith that is, I was in prison and I've been set free. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was an outcast and now I'm a daughter. A faith that says, above and against all odds, I believe that to be true. I trust that Jesus is the one that allows it and makes it happen. It's the reason why he says to the woman, your faith, your faith, not me, your faith has healed you. And he says to Jairus and the, and the mother of the little girl, come with me, just believe. Just believe. So it takes faith. The third thing that it takes for us to step into this identity is obedience. We see that happen with the demon-possessed man. He's like, I want to go with you. I want to I, I be with you. And he says, no, you need to go home. You need to go talk about this with others that you know. The man says, I, I want to go with you. And he says, no, I don't want you to go. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And it tells us that the man went away and began to proclaim to the cities, it's 10 cities is what it says there, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Oftentimes they say that Paul brought the gospel to the Gentiles. It was actually this man that brought the gospel to the Gentiles first. He's the first missionary to the Gentiles. We know that because either these are really bad Jewish people who were keeping herds of pigs, or they were Gentiles. I'm going to fall on the side of Gentiles. And where does he go to those people? He runs to them and tells them the mercy of God. It's obedience, because where would you really want to be? Where do you think he really wanted to be? This is a man who was an outcast, a man who had been torturing his own body, a man who was out of his mind living among the graves, and yet he's been set free. Where would you want to be? You would want to be with the man who did that. You would want to be as close to that power as possible. You would want to stay in that thin place with the Almighty. Yet God says, no, I need you to go proclaim who I am. And he obeys. He does much better than most of the disciples do later on. And so for us, there's a call of obedience. There's a call that we know that when we step into our identity, it means that our life has to change. That there are things that we formerly did that we no longer do. 
that there are ways that we formerly thought that we can no longer think that way, that there are places in our hearts that we used to hold dear that no longer can be dear to us, that we have to allow the God Almighty to transform us and change us into the image of His Son. And so it causes us to step in with obedience. But here's the most amazing thing about this. Mark, relaying these stories of Jesus that we believe literally, truthfully, historically happened, is that Jesus, in the midst of doing these healings, these amazing works, is he makes sure that he takes all the boxes by hitting everybody possible that could be considered an outsider to the kingdom of God. Gentiles, yes. Guys hanging out in tombs, yes. Demon-possessed men, yes. Woman, yes. Woman with a blood issue, yes. Dead person, yes. Self-righteous person, yes. He gets them all. And that's hope for us. That's hope for us because wherever we fall in the spectrum, whether we recognize that we're just sick in our hearts always and constantly and bent towards our own self-destruction, or whether we think we've got it all figured out and we've got it made, and man, if people just live like me, life would be so much better. Regardless, that means this. He came for you. He's come to give you a new truth identity. Better than you've ever hoped for. Better than you could ever imagine better than you can ever dream. And so to know that God has a name for me causes me to live in hope, even when things seem so desperate. To know that God has a name for me that is set aside, that he knows me more intimately than I could possibly know myself, releases me to live in a place of truth identity so that I long for relationship with him and with myself and with all others, and with the place that he's put me. Guillermo del Toro is a um, director and a writer. Um, it's one of my son's favorite. He's done lots of movies. He's won an Oscar for Shape of Water. Pacific Rim is my favorite that he's done. It's an action movie. That's probably why. But in Time Magazine uh, this week, they were talking about optimists. What does it mean to be an optimist? And it was funny because I thought, why is Tom, Time Magazine talking about optimism? That seems odd. But Guillermo del Toro wrote this little short article. And it says this. Optimism is radical. It is the hard choice. The brave choice. And it is most needed now in the face of despair. Just as a car is most useful when there is a distance to close, otherwise it's just a large, unmovable object parked in the garage. These days, the safest way to appear intelligent is to be skeptical by default. We seem sophisticated when we say we don't believe and disingenuine, disingenuous when we say that we do. History and fable show nothing is ever entirely lost. David can take out Goliath. A beach in Normandy can turn the tide of the war. Bravery can topple the powerful, and these facts are often seen as exceptional. 
but they are not. Every day, we all become the balance of our choices. Choices between love and fear, between belief or despair. No hope is ever too small. Optimism is our instinct to inhale while we are suffocating. Our need to declare what needs to be done in the face of what is. Optimism is not uncool. It is rebellious and daring and vital. The writer Theodore Sturgeon once said, 90% of everything is crap. That also means 10% of everything is worth the effort. And so it goes, time after time, choice after choice, that we decide to leave behind a biography or an epitaph. Look around you now and decide between the two. Inhale or die. The people in this passage, they inhaled. That little girl inhaled. Jesus said, get up. And she breathed deep, perhaps the deepest breath that she had ever had in her life. And she sucked it into her lungs and could not resist but exhale it back out. And when she did, joy erupted in that household. She stood up and she began to walk around. And yes, that happened physically, historically, and we believe it. And it happens to us because we too were dead. But now God has said, your identity is that you are alive in me. Rebel. Rebel against what the world sets forth for us. Rebel because there is hope. Let us breathe deep the breath of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are good to us and all you do is good. Let us hold on to you and know that you have brought us into our truth identity, which is with you. We give you glory and honor today. Let these words be your words and if they're not, let them blow away. But if they are, Lord, let them take root in our heart and bring you glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing together in response? Check. All right.